Well, hey, I'm excited to have uh, the opportunity to do this very last talk in the series, Return of the Thing. Uh, and you know we've been talking about ways that Satan tries to mess us up um, and things that can really get into our life and then just sort of tank us. And so um, I want to talk to you today about one of the sneakiest ways that I think Satan can try to mess with our lives, but I think it's so common and something that we really need to recognize and understand and fight back against. Uh, but before I do that, I want to talk to you about a little hobby of mine. I think it's not unusual for those of us who work at NewSpring to be kind of interested in branding because we do so much branding around here. We name sermon series and environments. And uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm always interested in as far as branding is concerned is how brands travel. Because you know, with different languages and so forth, sometimes a brand that works in one place doesn't work in another place. And sometimes even the biggest companies out there will sort of mess this up. And so I've sort of enjoyed over the years sort of cataloging some of these mistakes. One of my favorites is KFC. KFC has the slogan, or did for a long time, finger licking good. And in the United States, that makes a lot of sense, right? But in another country where they brought it over, they weren't very careful how they translated it, um, it came across as, we'll eat your fingers off. <laughs> right? Or how about this one? The Jolly Green Giant in another uh, country, when they're you know, getting these labels put on the cans of green beans and so forth, it comes across as intimidating green monster. Right? In uh, Belgium, there were um, a lot of car companies that had this very same problem. Uh, I found you know, GM had a problem with this, Ford had a problem with this. I had to pick one, so I picked Ford. But Ford was trying to write some ad copy that was going to go to Belgium, and they said in the ad, they said that all of their cars, every car has a high-quality body. But in Belgium, because the way the words came across, it came over as every car has a high-quality corpse. And no matter how high quality the corpse is, none of us want those in our cars, right? So, but the, the bottom line though is, I, I've, I've seen a lot of these and I still think that Pepsi takes the cake. I still think Pepsi wins the trophy, the prize. Uh, and some of you are already familiar with this because it's sort of, you know, legendary. But Pepsi had a slogan that said, come alive with Pepsi. But unfortunately in another country it was translated, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the dead. So there you go. Um, the interesting thing about it is that so much devolves on or, or comes back down to the interpreter. You know? And sometimes when uh, something is misinterpreted, it's not funny. Sometimes it's very sad, very offensive. Um, Nelson Mandela, when he passed away some years ago and there was a funeral uh, for him, there was an interpreter, a sign language interpreter, who stood pretty close to all the speakers who, who came up and, and gave tribute. Even the President of the United States was there. And this sign language interpreter was um, there to make sure that the deaf community were, was able to, to understand the entire um, message of all these great speakers. But right as it started, immediately people were taking to social media, Twitter and Facebook, people who understood sign language, and they were saying, this guy is signing gibberish. Most of what he's signing doesn't make any sense. They're not real signs. And there was such anger about the fact that here was a very, very important event, and it was being mistranslated. It was being misinterpreted. And as I was thinking about that story, it, it made me kind of come to this conclusion, and you can kind of see whether you would agree with me about this or not, but I sort of came to the conclusion that the message is always at the mercy of the interpreter, 
right? This is the lesson that those companies I mentioned a second ago, they never learned. Because you can spend thousands of dollars, potentially millions of dollars on an ad campaign, you can send it to focus groups, you can make sure everything seems to be working wonderfully with it, but if somebody down the food chain, who makes, by the way, a lot less than those advertising executives, mistranslates it from what this brilliant brand was, and they don't understand the words properly, or they don't understand the culture where it's going, and so now you're putting labels on product that are actually offensive or fun or whatever, they absolutely undo the money, the investment, all the work that you've put into this great brand. The message is always at the mercy of the interpreter. And the reason that I want to make that point is that I believe that within each of us, we all have an interpreter that tries to make meaning of what we see, what we experience, what other people tell us, whatever happens in our life. It's like there's an interpreter inside that has to figure out what does that mean. It sort of finishes this sentence. This must mean, and you fill in the blank. So my boss said that he wished that I would have done this differently. This must mean I'm going to lose my job, right? Or the interpreter could have a completely different take. My boss asked me for me to do this differently. This must mean that my boss cares about my performance and he wants to help me do well, and so he's trying to give me some feedback. But do you notice that depending on how you interpret it, what you would do afterward would be largely different. And so there are some of us that our interpreters are working well for us, or, or mostly well, and so it helps us in our life to sort of make sense of what's going on, but for some of us, our interpreters are not working so well, and it sort of has been something that's held us back a lot and caused difficulty for us. So that's what we want to talk about in our time uh, today, and I want to introduce you to a man in the Bible. His name is Saul. He was the first king of Israel, and he had a real interpreter problem. What, all the things that he went through, his interpreter messed up at trying to make the meaning of what they meant. So just to give you a little bit of, of, of Cliff's notes on Saul's life, because we're not going to go chronologically over the entire story of, of Saul's life. That would be impossible to do because it's such a long story um, and we wouldn't be able to do it justice. I'm gonna, just going to take little snippets of his life and we're going to make some points here about how his interpreter, got, how his interpreter became faulty. But before that, I just want to give you the Cliff's notes here. Saul was uh, Israel's first king. He, God chose him to be the first king. And as far as I'm concerned, God set him up for success. Nobody, in my opinion, was as set up to be as success as a king of Israel as Saul was. And yet he messed it up. Saul will go down in history as a person who was anxious. He was paranoid. He was, uh, um, he was aggressive towards people who cared about him. Uh, he, he was a difficult person. And basically, everybody will pretty much remember him as a loose cannon who doomed his own career. So I want to talk about why that happened, the fact that he had a faulty interpreter. Why did he have a faulty interpreter? How did that happen? And what were the beliefs that sort of took him in a negative direction? And what can we do about it? But before we do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about your interpreter and mine. Because I want to show you the inner workings of each of our interpreters. There's a little cycle inside that keeps that going, and here's what it is. Inside each of our interpreters, there's this. What we believe shapes what we tell ourselves. Fair? I'll give you an example. So you meet somebody for the first time, and you get the impression they don't like you, and you come to believe this person doesn't like me. What you will tell yourself later on when you're around this person or when you're interacting with this person will fit that belief. So the first time you meet them, they say, you say, they don't like me. And the next time you see them, they don't say hi to you. And you tell yourself, the reason they didn't say hi to me is because they don't like me. 
Or, you know, or maybe they do say hi, but they don't say hi in a warm way. Well, the reason that they use that tone of voice with me is they don't like me. So whatever it is that we believe, we tend to tell ourselves things that are compatible with those beliefs. But here's what I want you to know. It is a closed loop system, and here's why. We believe what we tell ourselves. It's a closed loop system. I tell myself things based off of what I believe, but when I tell myself things, it confirms what I believe. I believe what I tell myself. So that person that I think doesn't like me, they didn't say hi to me. They didn't say hi to me because they don't like me. Oh, that proves to me that they really, really don't like me. And it becomes a cycle and it just keeps going and going and going and going and going. And for those of you who are like me who struggle some with this, you understand that that cycle is so powerful it will take you to the worst case scenario every time. It'll go from something that seems a little threatening to something that seems a lot threatening really, really quickly. Right? So it is a closed loop system. This is, this is the basis for where we're going today. I want you to keep, keep track of this in your head, that our beliefs and what we tell ourselves are the core of our interpreter. If you want to know how your interpreter is programmed, what is the software that programs your interpreter, it is based off of your beliefs and what you tell yourself. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, how it impacted Saul and what, what happened uh, with him. Now Saul, his interpreter, was a very pessimistic interpreter. He would see things that happened and he would, ha he would come up with the worst possible scenario about that. As I said, our brains sometimes will go to that worst case scenario when we start to have those, those negative thoughts and we get in that closed loop. And so he practiced feeling threatened. Now here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with having a sense about whether or not a situation is threatening or safe. As a matter of fact, God gave us that. We have the fight or flight instinct. If a situation is legitimately threatening, right? If you, you know, walk in, walking in a field and you see a rattlesnake, it is a good thing to run. God gave us the fight or flight instinct. He sort of gave us a little antenna, right, to, to, to sort of judge, is this a safe situation or a dangerous situation? Psychologists tell us it's the very first thing your brain asks when you, when, when you hear something, when you walk into a situation, the very first thing your brain asks is, is this safe or is it dangerous? Nothing wrong with that. Just like the antennas that used to be on people's homes, right, on the roof, and that antenna would get the local relevant television stations for that area. So they would get local and relevant information. But... Do you remember back in the 80s, you'd be driving along and you'd see somebody would have a giant satellite dish outside? I mean, because you, you know satellite dishes aren't the, didn't start out the little things like you have on your roof now. They would have these huge gargantuan satellite dishes because they needed to pick up signals from space, right? So you pick up the weather report from Russia, right? And some of us, God gave us an antenna to judge whether something is threatening or safe, but we've practiced feeling threatened it's so much that we've gone from having an antenna to now we have a satellite, we're picking up risks from outer space, right? It's happened before, I've sat down with a couple, you know, I remember this about a year into my uh, coaching ministry, I was sitting down with a young married couple and uh, they were sort of adjusting to young married life, some of the normal adjustments that, that you have to work through. And she said, my mother-in-law, I, I, I asked her, because we're going over there for Christmas dinner, I asked her, what should I bring for Christmas dinner? And she said, my mother-in-law said to me, oh, you can bring just, just a side. And she said, what did that mean? She's like, because I was thinking to myself 
she's saying you can bring just aside. What does that mean? Does that mean she thinks that I'm unca- I'm incapable of bringing an entree? Does that think she's thinks she's me? I'm incapable of bringing a dessert, something that people could really respect and understand that I know how to cook and and I'm taking good care of of my husband. No, I've got to come to this event and look like all I'm capable of cooking is green beans. I can't do that. And she said, besides, it just reminded me. She said, just aside. When I get there, that's what people are going to think too. That's what she's going to think. That's all she brought was just aside. But I would have brought something more, but she wouldn't let me. She said, just bring aside. I knew nobody was good enough for that son of hers. I knew that I would never be able to live up to her standards. And now I've got to go to this Christmas dinner holding this puny little dish, this little side dish. But that wasn't what I wanted. That is what she wanted. She wants to take me out. (laughs) Well, I'd only been doing couples work for about a year and I was getting kind of dizzy. And I sympathize with where she's coming from, but do you see what I'm talking about with the satellite dish? We start to get threats from outer space. It's good for us to be able to recognize when a situation is truly threatening, but here's the problem. When we practice feeling threatened, when we, when we find threats where there aren't threats, we get really good at feeling threatened. See, the brain is a use it or lose it organ. Whatever it is that we practice feeling or thinking, we will get very good at feeling or thinking. And this is what happened with Saul. That's why his career was tanked. Uh, and, and that is really why, in my opinion, his interpreter was faulty. And I'm going to give you an example of it, and then we're going to really break this down to where, where we can look at it and its components. But I'll give you an example of Saul's faulty interpreter. Let's talk about David and Goliath. You're familiar with that story, right? You've got the Philistines who are, are fighting the Israelites, and the Philistines have this big guy named Goliath. Um, and a lot of times we call him a giant. We'll say the story's about David and a giant. But... But truthfully, he wasn't, he wasn't three stories tall or anything. The, the Bible, best Bible scholars tell us he was probably about nine feet tall. He would come out and he would taunt God's army and, and make jokes about God's army. And he would come out and say, look, there's no reason for us to have a big battle and all this bloodshed. Why don't you pick your champion? He can come out and fight me. And then if I win, you guys all become our slaves. But if you win, we'll all become your slaves. But the thing about it was, nobody was willing to take him on. And that's strange. Because the Bible says that Saul stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. Some Bible scholars think he was probably about eight foot two inches tall. So think about this. You've got a nine foot tall guy from the Philistines coming out to battle the Israelites. But the Israelites have a king who's potentially eight foot two inches tall. To me, and I may just be reading something into this, to me this sort of feels like God is teeing up the ball for Saul. This sort of feels like a slow pitch. That God is saying, all right, it's time for you to be established as king. It's time for you to really develop the respect of the people. So here's an opportunity for you to go out. There's not going to be a lot of bloodshed. You can go fight this guy who's only about 10 inches taller than you. And when you take him on, I'm going to be with you. Saul should have gotten that. So if Saul's interpreter had been working well and it wasn't a pessimistic interpreter, he might have even saw this as a good thing. Here is an opportunity for me to, to really solidify my leadership over the people. But his interpreter was pessimistic and it saw threats where there weren't threats. And so what happened is the Bible says that when Saul and the Israelites heard what Goliath was saying, they were terrified and deeply shaken. And that word deeply shaken in the Hebrew means they fell to pieces. I mean, Saul, with everybody else, is going, what do we do? You know? And so they think, well, we'll just hunker down and hopefully, eventually, they'll all go away. Then it gets weirder. Because this teenager named David shows up and says, I'll fight the giant. 
And so he ends up being brought to Saul, and David says the same thing. He says to Saul, he says, I'm, I'm willing to, to go fight this guy. And if Saul's interpreter had been working right, he might have looked at that and said, you know, wow, if this kid is willing to go take on the giant, then maybe what that should tell me is I need to get some courage in my own spirit, and I need to get off my rear end and go take care of business and do what God has called me to do. Or at least his interpreter could have said, hey, it's a good thing at least that somebody's willing to fight the giant. But look at what happened. Instead... His pessimistic interpreter kicked in, and he said, don't be ridiculous. There is no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. You know what's really interesting about when our interpreter becomes faulty, we start to project our anxieties onto somebody else. Because we don't think we're good enough, because we don't think we can do something, we start to to think that other people ought to think that way. We start to project it. So Saul says, you don't understand. You don't have what it takes to fight him. He's going to turn you into minced meat, right? But then it even gets weirder because David goes out and he takes on Goliath and he kills him. And so there's actually this moment where the Philistines are running away from the Israelites and the Israelites can go home and everything is okay. I mean, they just had the the greatest victory probably of that entire year. Saul's going home. On the way home, he's asking, who is this, you know, who's this teenager? We need him on our staff. He seems like he's got something worth keeping, you know, and at first it seems like it's a good day. At first things seem to be going pretty good, except for the fact that while they're coming home, they start hearing this song that the ladies are singing in Israel, and it really bummed Saul out. So the Bible says that these ladies came and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals, and here was their song. They sang, Saul has killed his thousands, and Saul really liked the first verse. Sing it, sisters, right? But then they say, David has killed his ten thousands. Well, now, if Saul's interpreter had been working right, he would have said, that is a, that is a worthwhile thing that they're doing to celebrate the fact that this teenager has just won this incredible battle for us. And they're honoring me as the king, but they're also honoring him, and they're especially honoring him on this day because of what he just did. That is a valuable thing. And if Saul's interpreter had been working right, he would have been the first to join in with them and sing this song celebrating the fact that David had really won an amazing battle and a victory for their people. He should also have realized, if his interpreter was working correctly, he would have realized that David was fiercely loyal to him And that this is all good. Nothing that is happening. The song, the battle with Goliath, everything, it's all good. There are no no bad things here to seize on. But somehow he snatches defeat from the jaws of victory. Because it says that when he heard the song, he became very angry. Do you have somebody like this in your life? They can go from having a really, really good day. It only takes one little trigger and bam, they're having a really, really bad day. One trigger, it's like a light switch flip. That's what happened for Saul. He was doing so good until he heard the song. And once he heard the song, he was really angry. And he says, what's this? Do you see the interpreter kicking in? I said the interpreter has, the, the interpreter's got to figure out what does this mean? He says, what's this? He said, they credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. And again, if his interpreter had been working correctly, he could have gone, okay, well then that's appropriate. But it wasn't working properly. So basically he came up with this. Next, they'll be making him their king. See, here's what happens. When we, when we teach ourselves to feel threatened because we see threats everywhere, eventually we'll start to see our anxieties as facts. 
So he didn't say, I'm worried maybe they're going to want to make him king. Or I feel anxious about the fact that maybe people are going to wonder why I didn't kill the giant. He says, next they'll be making him their king. In his mind, it was already a fact. He's going to try to take the throne away from me. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. I mean, you think about it. Saul made three big mistakes right in that one spot. You know? He, he's, when, when he was there, he, he, first of all, he lost a friend. If you think about it, because the Bible says that he turned a jealous eye on David. He lost his ability to celebrate. He couldn't celebrate what had just happened for his people, which was a big deal. They could have lost a lot of men in a battle, but instead they didn't lose anybody. And then primarily, he forgot who made him king in the first place. God made him king. So it would have taken God to make him not king. But he was afraid the people were going to make him not king. He should have remembered that the people didn't make him king in the first place. We can come back to that on another day. I want to do this. This is what I want to invest our time in today. I want to take you through three beliefs that messed up Saul's interpreter. I want to show you the three beliefs that programmed the software of his interpreter that took him in such a negative direction. And they're probably the three most common negative beliefs that I've heard in seven years of life and relationship coaching. And I want to break them down for you. And I want to show you where Saul teaches us something about each of these. Okay, so here's the first belief, the first negative belief that programmed his interpreter, and it's this, I'll never be good enough. Sound familiar? I hear this so often. I'll sit across from a couple and she'll say, I'll never be good enough for him. He'll say, I'll never be good enough for her. Right? I feel like no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I'll never meet that standard. And Saul felt that. Somewhere, maybe he, maybe he heard that growing up. Maybe his parents communicated in some way that he would never be good enough. Maybe he just picked it up somewhere. But at some point, he internalized it and it became part of the script that he lived his life with. And let me show you where this shows up in the scripture. First of all, we'll go to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 20. This is where Samuel, the prophet of God, has come to tell Saul, you're going to be the next king. And Samuel says, I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. And if Saul didn't have a pessimistic interpreter, he might have been jumping up and down for joy saying, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm actually going to get to have a major role in, in leading God's people. But instead, look at what happens. Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? Instead of being excited that God wanted to do something amazing with him, he was saying, you've got the wrong guy. This wasn't the first time he'd thought that. This was, a, this was a response that he came up with very quickly. So it tells us that he had been doing some thinking about this over time. He thought, well, first of all, I'm from the least important tribe in Israel. Second of all, I'm from the least important family in the least important tribe. And he made the mistake of believing that his background defined what his future might be. He started to believe that his family was an indication of how successful he might be in the future. Or his, the way he was raised was an indication of how successful he might be in the future. And he totally discounted the fact that God is bigger than your background and your family or any of the things that you've lived through up until this point. But there are some of us in the room that we're thinking the same sort of things. We're thinking if you knew my background, if you knew my lack of pedigree, if you knew the lack of degrees that I have, if you understood all the things that, that brought me to where I am today, you would say, well, that person doesn't have much potential. But you do have to understand that the Bible says it is God who lifts people up and God who makes people low. It is not degrees, it is not backgrounds, it's not family. It's whatever God decides he wants to do in your life. But at the moment, Saul just wasn't getting that. I'm going to take you also to 1 Samuel 10. This is when it's time for Saul to be anointed king in front of the people. And God has made it very clear to the people of Israel 
that Saul is to be their new king, but they can't find him. And so they go to the Lord and they say, where is he? Where is this new king of ours? And the Lord replied, he is hiding among the baggage. So they had to go fish him out. They found him and brought him out. So here's the deal. They go to the Lord and they say, where is this this new king of ours, and, and God says, well, he's in front of the American tourister and behind the Samsonite. I don't know why he's over there. You know. For Saul, it didn't feel like he belonged. He just didn't feel good enough. We're going to fast forward way later in Saul's career. He's been king now for a long time. He's afraid David's trying to take the throne away from him, so much so that he's chasing David down. If he can find David anywhere, he's going to kill him. And you should also know that Saul's son, David, is, or excuse me, Saul's son's Jonathan is very good friends with David. And Jonathan doesn't want anything bad to happen to David. And so he's trying to sort of feel out, where's dad at? Is dad still in this murderous rage or is he in a good mood? Because Saul could be very moody. And so there was this big feast that they were supposed to have. David was supposed to be there. But Jonathan told David, listen, hold off. Don't come to the first night of the feast. Let me figure out, you know, where dad's at. I want to make sure it's safe for you to be there. So when David doesn't show up to the feast, Saul thinks Jonathan does have something to do with it. And so here's what he says. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan and he said, you stupid son of a... Well, he said something that wasn't very nice. And then he swore at him, right? And then he says, do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place? Do you hear his anxieties becoming facts? I know what you want. I know you want him to be king in your place. Well, that's not what Jonathan wanted. And can you think about how irrational that is? How irrational that, that Saul's son would want somebody else to be king instead of him? It doesn't make any sense. But anxieties don't have to make sense for us to feel them. But he was allowing his anxieties to become facts. And he says, don't you think that I know that this is what you're trying to do? Saul didn't feel good enough for his own kid. There's some of you in this room, and you feel that way. You think as as much as you've tried to be a good parent, as much as you've tried to be there for them and to be what they need, you still don't think that you're good enough for your kid. But the, the interesting thing is, Jonathan loved his dad. Jonathan loved Saul, but Saul's anxieties had become facts, and now Saul felt like, I'm not good enough for anybody. I'm not even good enough for my son, Jonathan. So I just want to take you to one last place before we move on from this belief, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be good enough for anybody. And, and before I do that, um, I, I want to tell you, sometimes I'll have a couple come into my office and, and um, you know, he'll sit there and she'll sit there and, and she'll say to me, you know, Jonathan, I've, um, you know, I've read a couple magazines recently and, uh, and there was a thing there where you could fill out the thing and, and diagnose your husband. It's like a form, it asks you questions and you can figure out you know, what, what's wrong with him. And so I, I, took the, I took the assessment and what it turned out, see, my husband is a raging narcissist, which I didn't know before. Um, I didn't say anything to him about it. I thought I'd wait until we got into the appointment with you. And now that we're all here, the three of us, I thought you could explain to him why he's a raging narcissist and how, what he should do about it to be better. I always enjoy those appointments. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the term narcissist, 
Narcissism, it gets thrown around a lot in our culture. It's almost like a fun word now for anybody that we feel like is maybe self-absorbed or self-obsessed. Um, and, and people use it almost as though we could talk about narcissism like a real illness, like we could, you know, we could take a blood test and see it on a slide. We can't. Narcissism is just a, a word for a series of traits. But it is interesting, and I have the privilege of being somebody who's an, uh, an active student of psychology and a pastor at the same time. And, and over the past few years, it's been interesting that what we've really learned about narcissism is that at the heart of it is a deep felt insecurity. That at the heart of a narcissist, you have somebody who feels that they're not good enough, and so they have to work hard all the time to prove that they are good enough. And we see this in Saul. If we look at 1 Samuel 15, check this out. This is kind of a, rare, a rarity in Scripture. Saul goes to the town of Carmel to do what? To set up a monument to himself. That's narcissistic. Hey, there ought to be a statue of me, and nobody's building it, so I'm going to build it. Love me some me. When I ride through Carmel, I want to see a big statue of me, right? Why is he building a statue to himself? Because he needed to prove that he was good enough. I'm talking to somebody in this room, and that's you. You're working so hard. I'm not saying that you're a narcissist. I'm saying that you're working really hard to prove that you're good enough. Everything that you do, you find yourself in a constant daily battle to prove to the rest of the world, to your spouse, to your kids, to your friends, to your coworkers, that you're good enough. And it's interesting that the harder we work to prove that we're good enough, the farther we get away from God. And the person that really determines our worth is God. But we'll come back to that before we're done. I want to show you the second belief that messed up Saul's uh, interpreter. And, and some of you are familiar with this because some of you, uh, you, you've been around a person who really struggles with insecurity or they struggle with having this sort of pessimistic view of the world. And you know that when you, when you talk to them, they can sort of toggle from that place where they're really trying to prove that they're good enough to, they'll start to toggle over into sort of a victim role. Well, they'll sort of start, of, start to sort of give you those words that par- become part of that victim script that I'm being taken advantage of and I'm trying so hard, but no, life isn't fair and I'm not getting what I deserve. And Saul really had that going on. And in a sense, we really get this idea that he held the belief that nobody cares about me. Nobody cares about me. I'll show you an example of this. Um, If we go to uh, 1 Samuel 22, Saul's talking to the men of Benjamin of his tribe. And he's chasing down David. He's trying to find David, but he's really upset because nobody has told him where David is. And he's thinking, if anybody ought to tell me where David is, it ought to be these guys who are part of my tribe. So he says, listen here, you men of Benjamin. Um, He says, has that son of Jesse, and David was the son of Jesse, has David promised every one of you fields and vineyards and sort of the implied is like like I have? Uh, Has he promised to make you all generals and captains in his army like I have? Is that why you have conspired against me? Again, they hadn't conspired against him, but when when we practice feeling threatened, our anxieties become facts. For not one of you told me when my own son made a solemn pact with the son of Jesse, you're not even sorry for me. Think of it, my own son encouraging him to kill me, which once again was not the truth, as he is trying to do this very day. So I don't know if you get this as you read that, but he's saying, you're not even sorry for me. Does it sound familiar? Do you have somebody in your life that says things like, after all I've done for you, I've always been there for you, I've been over backwards. Anytime you needed something, I was there, right? Anytime you asked for something, wasn't I the first one there to try to get it for you? Haven't I, told, haven't I always been there for you? Whenever you needed somebody there for you, I was there. I, I wasn't going out doing things for myself. I could have been having fun. I could have been doing things for myself. I could have been a drug addict. 
and now this is how you repay me. When I need you, you don't show up. Here's, here's what happens. Here's why people start to go into the victim role and, and, and start to read the victim script. is because for them, they don't feel good enough. And so because they don't feel good enough, and it feels like that is a fact. It is a fact that I am not good enough, and yet they know how hard they try. Life feels unfair. They're trying so hard to be good enough, and it feels like a fact that they will never get there. And life feels unfair, and you start to hear that anger come out in that victim voice. It's just not fair. Look how hard I try, and I don't get back what I put in. We definitely see this with Saul. Later on, the men in Ziph are willing to give David up to him, right? So it says, the men of Ziph went to Saul and Gibeah and betrayed David to him. We know where David is hiding, they said, and he's in the strongholds of Horesh, the hill of Hekila, which is in the southern part of Shimon. Come down whenever you're ready, O king, and we will catch him and hand him over to you. The Lord bless you, Saul said. Now check this out. He says, the Lord bless you because at last someone is concerned about me. At least life is getting a little bit more fair, right? There's a, a passage that, that we're going to go through in a second where Saul had heard that there was a priest in another country who was helping out David. Well, all that had happened was David was in this other um, area, and he was hungry. He hadn't had anything to eat, and he was trying to run away from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. He didn't have any weapons, and so this priest gave him some bread to eat and gave him Goliath's sword, and the priest thought if anybody ought to have Goliath's sword, it makes sense that the guy who killed him ought to have it, so it made perfect sense, but what happened was a traitor came and told Saul, this priest is helping out David, and so Saul blows up, and he orders his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. But Saul's men, look at this, they refused to kill the Lord's priests. So what happens is Saul turns to this turncoat, this Benedict Arnold, this Doeg guy who said, I can tell you where David is. And he says, you do it. So Doeg the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day, 85 priests of God in all, still wearing their priestly garments. And then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, and killed the priest's families, men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. I want to make this point, and hopefully I can make it clearly, because I don't think I've done a good job of making it clearly in the first three services. When we start to play the victim role, what happens is we start to push away everybody in our life that is truly exceptional. See, God sends people into our life that are exceptional, just like Saul had these military men, his top elite, first-class military guys. God sent him into his life because he needed exceptional people in his life. As a matter of fact, God sent David into Saul's life because Saul needed exceptional people in his life. But the problem is exceptional people don't like to be around people who are consistently playing the role of a victim. Because exceptional people understand that life is about challenging your circumstances, not whining about them. And so what happens is, as Saul is dealing with this situation, he wants his guys to go out and kill all these priests. And these exceptional men say, "Huh, uh we're not going to do that. And so Saul says, well, forget you guys. And he talks to this Benedict Arnold idiot guy and says, why don't you do it? And so now Saul's friends, by the time Saul's you know, life is over, his entire group of friends are a bunch of people that really didn't bring anything to the table other than their own paranoias and their own life challenges. It's one of the reasons why it's so important 
that we not allow ourselves to fall in the victim role. We'll talk a little bit about how we can do that in a second, but I want to talk to you about the very last belief that messed up Saul's interpreter, and it's a big one. It's the belief that if I can't control it, I'll lose it. Once we begin to believe that we'll never be good enough, and once we begin to believe that nobody cares about us, then there is no reason to believe that we won't lose the things that are most important to us. And if we're gonna lose the things that are most important to us, then the only way we can keep that from happening is to, is to grab them as tightly as we can and try to control it. I'll give you examples of how this happened in, in Saul's life. Saul uh, was getting ready to go to battle um, in, uh, against another people group early in his career. And they were getting ready to have this face off. But before battle, they were supposed to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And the prophet of God was supposed to be the one to offer the sacrifice. But the problem was that when Saul was waiting for the prophet to come, he waited seven days and Samuel didn't come. So Saul saw that his troops were rapidly slipping away. A lot of his guys were saying, look, if we're just going to stand around, I'm going to go home. And so he demanded, Saul, Saul demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. He was not supposed to do that. That wasn't his job. That was Samuel's job. And just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you've done? He's saying, I don't understand this. Why did you think you could do that? And Saul replied, look at this, I saw my men scattering from me and you didn't arrive when you said you would and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal and I haven't even asked the Lord's help. So I said, what he's saying is, my interpreter kicked in and here's what my interpreter told me. Getting ready to lose everything. These guys are getting ready to march against us, Right? And so because we're getting ready to lose everything, I felt compelled to take control and do it myself. See, some of us in this room, this is what we do. We're not really controlling people. We're not manipulating people. It's only when we think we're getting ready to lose something. Only when it feels like something that's important to us, we're getting ready to lose. Then we grab and we grasp and we control. And people label us being controlling, but we know in our heart we're not. We just are afraid. That's what Saul was trying to say. I was, I was afraid. There's another story that I'm going to go through really quickly where God wanted to settle the score with, a, with another people group that had fought the Israelites on their way to Canaan. And God said, I want you to go in and wipe them out. And I don't want you to spare anything. I don't want you to save anything because this is not about you getting rich off of this country. This is about, this, this is about just following my instructions. And so, unfortunately, Saul didn't do that. The Bible says that Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men, look at this. First of all, they spared Agag's life, and then secondly, they kept the best of the sheep and goats and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality, so they did not follow the instructions. And Samuel, once again, has to confront Saul. What on earth are you doing? That wasn't what you were supposed to do. That wasn't what the instructions were. And he basically told Saul, you're facing off to God. You've basically just sealed the fate of your career. And Saul gets really, you know, repentant. And he says, look, yeah, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. But look at this. But I was afraid of the people. I was getting ready to lose everything. And I did what they commanded. I had to take control. This wasn't the only couple of times in Saul's life. He, he would do this over and over again. He would make such stupid decisions because he thought he was getting ready to lose something. When One day when David was, was trying to serve in Saul's court, Saul got so anxious and paranoid that David was trying to take the throne away from him that Saul grabbed a spear and threw it at the guy so hard that when David dodged it, it lodged in the wall. 
And then later on, when Saul was sure that Jonathan was trying to help David, Saul threw a spear at his son Jonathan. Listen, if your dad throws a spear at you, it's a bad day, you know? Even at the end of his life, Saul, Saul had tried very hard over the years to cleanse his, uh, the nation of witches and mediums and people who were involved in witchcraft. But at the end of his life, Samuel, God's prophet, was dead and he wasn't getting any information from God about whether he should go into battle or whether he shouldn't go into battle and he was really scared. And so he disguised himself and went and found a witch and asked the witch to bring back Samuel from the dead so he could talk to him and figure out what to do. Now, the, the witch had been perpetuating a, a hoax because mediums can't bring people back from the dead. She'd, she'd gotten you know, in the habit of trying to you know, make believe like that was happening. So when God actually sent Samuel back down to have a conversation with Saul, it freaked the witch out. She wasn't, actually, she wasn't used to calling somebody back from the dead and them actually showing up. And Samuel told Saul what he didn't want to hear, that he was getting ready to lose, not just the battle, but his life. And his life ended in such a negative way. Saul will never be looked at as one of the great kings of Israel. But let's back away from Saul for a minute and just talk about you and me. Because some, some of us in this room, we struggle with these beliefs, and some of us to different extents, but we struggle with these beliefs, and they bounce around in our head. I'm never going to be good enough. Nobody cares about me. If I don't control it, I'll lose it. And they sort of take us to that worst-case scenario place. I want to tell you what the Bible tells us about how to reprogram our interpreter. If you feel like maybe your interpreter's been a little faulty, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take out a piece of paper, uh, the back of an envelope, a napkin, and you know, grab a pen, or pay, a pen or pencil, mascara, something that you can write with. I'm going to show you a couple things that will help reprogram your interpreter. Remember I said the core of your interpreter is your beliefs and what you tell yourself. So very quickly, let me give you one verse you can use to filter what you tell yourself. We'll, we'll, we'll handle that part first. So Philippians chapter 4 says this, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So when it comes to what we tell ourselves, we need to use the Philippians 4 filter and ask ourselves, are the things that I'm telling myself matching up to those criteria? But I'm in overtime and I want to really move on to our beliefs because I still think that's the most important part. Samuel, God's prophet, went to Saul and he said, listen, here's some things that you really need to hear. And the things that he told Saul were things that if he had used them to reprogram his beliefs, I believe the whole rest of the story of his life could have been different. So he approaches Saul and he says this. He says, um, even though you may think little of yourself, that's why we say Saul was an insecure person. He didn't think much of himself. Are you not the leader? He had a position. Are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel and the Lord has sent you on a mission. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord. Here's three things. These are the things I want you to write down. If you struggle with your interpreter, these are the three things I want you to write down. Here's the first one. The first one is, I have a position. I have a position. Did you notice, he said, you may think little of yourself, but aren't you the king? Aren't you the leader of God's people? I'm talking to somebody in this room that thinks little of themselves. You think little of yourself, but aren't you the mom? Aren't you the dad? Aren't you the supervisor? Aren't you the accountant? Aren't you the computer programmer? Aren't you the person that God put in the job that you have, in the role that you have? Well, yeah, but Jonathan, you don't understand. I just got that role, or I just got that because of, you know, because of circumstances. No, you didn't. You got it because God believed you could handle it, and God was part of how you got into the role that you're in now. 
Some of us, we think, you know, I'm, I, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, nobody cares about me. I'm, 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 a, I'm a parent that nobody cares about. I'm an employee that nobody cares about. God cares enough about you that he placed you in the position that you're in. So even if somebody else doesn't see the value in you that you would hope they would, you have to understand God saw value in you or you wouldn't be where you are. I have a position. The second thing I want you to write down is this. I have an anointing. I have an anointing. Now, there are some religious groups that have sort of attached some, some additional uh, importance and connotations to anointing, but I just want to tell you that the, the biblical idea of anointing is God giving somebody specific gifts, specific talents, and specific enablements for them to accomplish his purpose. So every single person in this room, if you follow God and, and you're a Christ follower, you have an anointing. God has given you gifts and talents and skills and abilities and they form a unique combination that nobody else has because God knew you would need those things to accomplish his purpose. But some of us are saying, but I'm not good enough for anybody and I'm never gonna be good enough. Here's the thing, you're not just, you're not just good enough, you are invested with everything that you need to accomplish God's purpose in your life. That's better than being good enough. Who cares whether you're good enough for your neighbors? Who cares what, what grade somebody at work would give you on a, on a grade card about how valuable they think you are? If God thought you were valuable enough to give you all of this so that you could accomplish his purpose, then that should tell us something. That means I'm a valuable human being. If I have an anointing, I'm a valuable human being. I am good enough. I'm good enough for God to invest in me. And then here's the third thing. I have a mission. Samuel said, aren't you the king? You have a position. He said, didn't God anoint you? You have an anointing. And then he said, and God sent you on a mission. See, God has something for you to accomplish in this world. You're not here for no reason. God sent you here because there is business to do that you can do because God, has, ha, ha, God put you here to accomplish that. So there is something for you to do. See, so often we get into this pattern of thinking, I'm going to lose something, so I better control it. But we have to recognize the whole reason that we're even thinking about what we've gained and lost is because we're bored because we're not on mission. See, a person that's on mission doesn't have to worry so much about what they're gaining or losing because they're so driven towards what it is that they're trying to accomplish. And so God is trying to remind us, look, it's time to get off the sidelines and quit counting how much money we have in our wallet and quit counting whether or not we're getting enough in life or we're losing in life and whether we're losing this person's respect or gaining this person's respect, keeping tally of what we have and what we don't have. We should be keeping track of where we're headed and how we're going to get there. I have a mission. When I was growing up, I would watch different television broadcasts that would come on the TV from churches around the country, and um, there was one that came on that I, I was really impressed by. There was a, a man who was preaching on the broadcast, but it was, it was very obvious that it was very hard for him to preach. You could hear in his voice that it was, it was a, a labor for him to get the words out, and uh, I would later learn that this man's name is David Ring, and, and he was born with cerebral palsy. He's had a really rough life. He was orphaned at 14. Through his later teenage years, he bounced around from family to family. And uh, everything that a person could use to prime their interpreter to see things pessimistically, he's, he's gone through those sorts of things. And yet, for the last 40 years, he stood in pulpits across the country and across this country and around the world preaching the gospel of Christ, even though it is so hard for him to do so that it is physically totally exhausting just for him to stand up and preach. 
He's got a sermon that he's preached around the world that's called, I have cerebral palsy, what's your excuse? Sort of the point of the message is this. If he can go through what he's been through and his interpreter can see it through an optimistic way of God has given me a, uh, an anointing, God has given me a mission, God has given me a position, and, and he can invest in that and not see the negatives and not see the downsides, then it's a good question. What is our excuse? What's our reason for doing that? See, here's the thing. Satan wants you off of the path. He doesn't want you accomplishing what God has for you to do. So if he can, if he can just sort of reprogram the interpreter so that those things that would be positives turn into negatives, then we sit on the bench and we say, well, I guess I'm just not gonna live that kind of life. And I'm here today, last message of the return of the thing, to say God's calling you off the bench and saying, leave that behind and start seeing that I have a goal for you, I have a mission for you, let's work together, let's go do something because I see value in you and you can do it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this group of people that are here today. Thank you for the fact that you have given us a mission. Now I pray that you would encourage us and enlighten us with the fact that you do have plans and goals for us and that those plans are for our future and for our hope. And I thank you, Father, for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us this weekend.